Hello, hello, everybody. This is your trusty host, Ashley Low Blasting Game, and I am here with our producer, Christiana Kimmick. What, you don't like that? <laughs> trusty? I don't know. Like a ship. <laughs> That's what came to mind. I love it. Oh, God. <laughs> and hello. Hello, this is my trusty host. <laughs> trusty. Trusty host. I'm like a... I didn't know if that was going to be a cut or not. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. We'll just leave it in there. <laughs> so last week, we had Brittany on the podcast. Amazing. She was so great. She was great. She's such a great storyteller, too. Yeah, she is. And she's an amazing person. I was listening back to some of the podcasts, and I use the word amazing like every five seconds. I didn't notice. Yeah, it's true. I'm going to... I don't know if I can change that, but... Uh, I, don't know. I think it's, it works. It's insight. Yeah. There's my authenticity. I use the word too much. Um, <laughs> yeah, she is incredible. See, see what I did there. And, oh, the change. Uh, I loved her topics because I relate to them so so much. Just all of it. Just finding recovery in <laughs> while you're already in recovery, and she's just she's just awesome. What stood out for you in that episode? Well, there, okay, so there's one kind of general thing that stood out from listening to all the podcasts, and then there's one specifically for Brittany. So the general one was I'm starting to hear a trend in these stories with picking up uh, your first drink of alcohol and how it made them feel. Mm -hmm. So I took a drink and I thought, there it is. That's what I've been looking for. And then all of a sudden, it's like literally like described like the mm -hmm. liquid courage. Mm -hmm. And they have like found a part of themselves and it helps yeah. kind of bring that to the surface. So I thought that was interesting because that's episode four. You know, I've heard it now in one, two, three, and four. And so I thought that was interesting. In Brittany's episode specifically, I thought it was very interesting. I think that's a word I use a lot, by the way. <laughs> interesting. I had no clue the the link between overeating and alcoholism for oh, some people. Yeah. I did oh, not yeah. know that was a thing. Yep. I was yeah. so it makes sense now. And right. especially hearing her explain it. I mean, she explained it so well. It yeah. was so easy to follow her story and understand her yes. story. Yes. Um, but gosh, like what a struggle to go from one thing and then to the next. And and I think with the food aspect and I think Brittany said this in her interview. It's like alcohol you can live without. It is not something that is absolutely like vital to existence, but you have to eat. Yes, this is true. And this is actually so this is something this is one of my biggest struggles. Like one, you know, if I could if I had a lifetime struggle, alcohol and drugs actually pale in comparison to this for me personally, for that exact reason. I don't have to interact with drugs and alcohol. I'm not you know, I don't have to learn how to moderate those things, thank God, because when I tried, it didn't go well. But I do have to figure out how to interact with food. And in recovery from alcohol and drugs, you know, I talked, we talked about in that episode, I, we talked about how untreated alcoholism is sometimes worse than active alcoholism or addiction. And I'm using addiction and alcoholism interchangeably here. The reason I say that and, and the reason that, you know, Brittany and I sort of discussed this was alcoholism addiction requires a solution. Bottom line, it mm -hmm. requires a solution. Yeah. Untreated, it makes people very unhappy, irritable, discontent. And 
a lot of what you figure out how to do in sobriety is how do I treat this? What do I treat this with? And it's so easy to overdo something like food or overdo something that makes you feel good in in that sense because you are interacting with it three times a day. And if you already had an unhealthy relationship with food in the beginning, like Brittany did, like I did, then guess what comes rearing its ugly head after you put those other things down. And 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 the other thing I found was I don't know if, I can't remember if Brittany dealt with this, but I dealt with weight gain really young. Mm-hmm. Um, like it was a real problem where my parents actually sat me down in first grade and had a conversation. They were, bless their souls, they were so gentle about it and I did not feel shamed about it, but I do remember the conversation. And I we had just moved from Cambridge to the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, and I put on all this weight and a lot for a first grader. And I was absolutely doing the equivalent of what Brittany was doing, eating raw sugar in the pantry. I was Mm. so uncomfortable. We just moved across country. I hadn't told anyone about the sexual abuse at this point. And I was eating, just eating my feelings. And over time, as you get older, and especially as a teenage girl, it's way easier to, you know, use alcohol and drugs as opposed to, you know, weight gain and, and dealing right. with that. So it's like, you know, you, I got, I found alcohol and drugs and was like, okay, well, I don't have to, this is a much better solution because it doesn't make me fat. Wow. You know, so, and, and, and so anyway, that Brittany and I have spent um, a lot of time together talking about this and she's so inspirational for me because it's something I really struggle with to this day. Not so much the way that she described it anymore, but definitely how to interact with sugar. Sugar metabolizes into alcohol, and I just do not have a normal relationship with it, and I know that. Wow. So going back to if anyone's listened to Ashley's story in episode one, if you haven't, then go listen to it. It's (laughs) absolutely incredible and uh, very inspirational how far she's been able to come and, and inspire others with her story and with her ability to overcome. But that was, you talked about a little bit more in your story about the move and how yeah. how difficult that was. I've moved a lot in my life. Yeah. Like I've moved from California to the Midwest to Atlanta mm. and then back to California. And I think I, we lived in Rhode Island at one point. So, I mean, I understand that stress. It's very difficult. And yeah. I had many breakdowns and was yeah. all ages whenever I moved. You talked about in your move how you had struggled. And I guess I would love to know like what was – you were eating your feelings. So yeah. – we talk about the craving for alcohol. Yep. So what does that craving feel like? Like what was taking you to food and what was giving you that type of a relationship with food? What was it fulfilling to? I guess I'd love to hear that. That's a great question. I My clarity on this topic is you'll hear is a bit less than the alcohol piece because I don't remember having thoughts around the food, to be honest. It's much more mindless. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's part of the issue, right? Is that it's just, it's much more, you know, it's, it's, it's hidden in, well, I'm hungry. It's meal time, you know, whatever it's hidden. It's kind of, it's, it's much more complicated. It feels like 
But basically when we moved and, and my heart goes out to people who move, you know, constantly as children, yeah. particularly, you know, people whose families are in the military, I can't even imagine. Yeah. For me, it was really, there was a lot going on. My youngest sister was just born and um, so I was the oldest of three girls. So there was a new baby. I had been experiencing sexual abuse that I hadn't told anybody about. Mm. And then we moved across the country to a completely new place. And culturally, I was very different from the people at the school that I went to in San Francisco or in the Bay Area, rather. You know, I had, I had a Boston accent when we showed up and um, I had, you know, my dad's uh, Jewish and I inherited the, the Jufro and uh, <laughs> I have really curly, really, really curly hair that I currently straighten. And, and so I had that as a little kid. So I just was really awkward and I had a lot going on. And I just remember what I can tell you, I just remembered that doing that excessively from at, at school, just eating, like eating the things that made me feel good. And mm-hmm. I don't remember thinking about it. I, you know, but what's, what's actually interesting about that though, is I talked about, I talked about like drinking cough syrup at a young age, like randomly going by and drinking cough syrup. And I don't have any thoughts around that. I didn't have any, like, I'm going to drink cough syrup. So it makes me feel better ideas. So in some ways I think that's the same stuff, right? It's just this like, under like a lacking of verbal understanding mm-hmm. around I just do things that make me feel better. Obviously, right. I don't feel right. And I do. I remember feeling so uncomfortable in my skin. And it just got worse, you know? It just got worse the more the more the food stuff came into play. It was, I mean, it just made it so much worse. You know, first you're uncomfortable with the hair and the accent, and then you put on like 30 pounds and, you know, that, like as a little kid. I mean, it was just, it was bad. It, it, but what I think is so important about that, aside from my own, you know, struggles, which I'm happy to talk about, and and I'm currently in the process. And I, I, I'm happy to share my journey as we go with this, that I'm experienced, that I have to have the courage to change, that I have to have the courage to look at this on a daily basis to this day. And what a lot of women in particular, but men too, find after getting sober is that this eating stuff rears its ugly head that it's been there, that it was the first addiction because it's the first available one. Right. I mean, you see kids with sugar, right? So imagine the ones who have the predisposition, who feel uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. who maybe had trauma, all those things, that's going to be the first thing available to them. Yeah. So that's, that'll be their first drug of choice. Very common. And then getting sober and it, you know, maybe a few years in, maybe it takes a few years. I think it took me a few years after being sober for it to come back. So Brittany's conversation about that was really, really inspirational to me because she she hit a bottom in sobriety, as that's what she described. She hit a bottom at like five years sober and started a new type of recovery all over again. And it's possible to go on with your recovery without doing the work a lot of people do it. It's not very comfortable, but a lot of people do it. And she didn't do that. Mm-hmm. She did not accept that she was going to live miserably in her in while being sober. Mm-hmm. And I have a lot of respect for that because that's not easy to do. It's not easy to have this recovery and then start kind of feel like a newcomer again, mm-hmm. um, have that feeling, feeling of defeat 
and go back to the drawing board with something new. Having these addictions, you know, pop up over the years is is a pretty normal thing. Okay. Did that explain? That was like I a long... I think it did. No, that was really good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that was really good. That was a bit tangential, but you hopefully that explained it. What is this word? Tangent. Oh, like you took me on a ta- tangential. Mm-hmm. That's a word? Correct. This is Ashley, the I am Johns now. Hopkins University <laughs> MBA candidate, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> she is now spouting verbiage that I have no clue what it is. Sorry. Go back to <laughs> no, that. I, I took you on great. a tangent. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I just learned a new word and so did our listeners. <laughs> that was great. Something else that Brittany had mentioned that I would love some more clarity on. She said sometimes she would black out after two drinks. Mm. Oh, yes. Yeah. So I know for a lot of people who do drink, two drinks is not like blackout status for them. So do you have any thoughts on that? Because I actually thought you had to be like really, really really trashed in order to black out. Yeah. So I remember that too. I actually looked up some information to uh, share about blacking out. So I'm going to share that with you before I give any anecdotal experience and information. I will say one thing is that the longer people drink at first, your tolerance, when you, you, whenever you start drinking at first, your tolerance is low, right? You have a drink and all of a sudden you're drunk. Then you gain tolerance I almost said earn tolerance. <laughs> there you go, ladies and gentlemen, there it is. Um, then you, you know, you build up tolerance over time and then it starts to diminish. So at a certain point in your alcoholic career, if you will, you go back to having very little tolerance. Interesting. Um, yeah. So I think I think your body just like your body's like out. no yeah. more. No more. But um I got some information uh online and we'll put the link to the information that I got. But so basically, um, it is believed that the hippocampus, which is a part of your brain, is momentarily impaired. This is a structure of the brain important for weaving together incoming information to create our memories of everyday events. That is short-term memory. People with severe damage to this area cannot create new memories. Alcohol, therefore, shuts off brain circuits central to making episodic memories memories of specific times and places. Quote, we think a big part of what's happening is that alcohol is suppressing the hippocampus and it's unable to create this running record of events. It's like a temporary gap in the tape. So I think that's what a lot of people experience. And then in terms of risk factors, this was really interesting. Um, People who with lower body weights and women are more susceptible to blackouts We now know about several factors that influence this, such as drinking on an empty stomach or when you're sleep deprived. Another major risk has to do with how fast the alcohol is consumed, which is why people take shots, because you get drunk faster. So it says as the quicker we gulp, the faster our blood alcohol level spikes. So Mm -hmm. this could spike your your BAC, your blood alcohol, And that would take you potentially to a blackout, Um, it seems to induce. So a blood alcohol level of between 0.2 and 0.3% seems to be able to induce a total blackout where nothing is remembered because there's also something called a brownout where there's partial memory. But blood alcohol levels do not explain why only some people lose whole chunks of their memory while others who drink similar amounts don't. A study in 2016 led by Ralph Hingson 
also of the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, provided some answers. He says, quote, the frequency with which people reported binging and being drunk in the past month played a role, as did whether they smoke and took more than one psychoactive drug. There was a really interesting one. This is the last one. I will share with you, this said, individuals whose mother had a history of alcohol problems were found to be more at risk. Another study, this time on more than a thousand pairs of twins, found that a genetic link accounted for half the blackouts experienced. Across the board, there seems to be inherent brain vulnerabilities and genetic vulnerabilities that it puts a person at risk. Women would routinely black out with three fewer drinks than men, and women who consumed only one drink more than their usual amount had a 13% higher chance of blacking out than men. So basically what this tells us is that women are more susceptible. It kind of depends on your genetics. It depends on how quickly you drank. It depends on how much you weigh, whether or not you had anything to eat. It depends on what you've been doing for the last month and if you've taken anything else. So there are a lot of variables to blacking out, it sounds like. And I assume Brittany was qualifying for more than one of them. That would make sense. And it seems like the abuse that's been done on your body with Mm -hmm. mass consumption of, you know, alcohol, drugs, you know, prescription drugs, whatever the case may be, that can, I mean, as you were kind of saying, that also plays a pretty huge factor. I mean, honestly, there were times where I remember this one time where I was in Capitola with my then boyfriend and it was very common for me to drink minimum a quart of vodka a day and I poured myself a big glass of vodka, just like a glass, and I drank it and that was it. Like I don't remember anything at all for at least a day and a half. And that wasn't an abnormal amount of alcohol, but for whatever reason at that time it was just... I mean, I in particular remember that blackout because it was unusual. Um, Mm -hmm. It was an unusual thing for me to, like, how how did that happen? And, you know, it talks about sleep deprivation and all the other things. I mean, bottom line, when you're drinking like that, you're not very healthy. Mm -hmm. Um, You're probably not taking great care of yourself. You're not, you know, you're probably drinking for the effect, right? You're drinking quickly to get drunk quickly. And I think a lot of those things you know, that will take you into a blackout, brownout. And some people are really more susceptible than others. I've heard of people who are, who have a couple drinks and blackout every single time they drink. That was not my experience, Mm -hmm. but I know that I know people who had that experience. That's a really great explanation. And we'll include those statistics uh, in the episode description so yes, that you guys yes. can kind of see that. The source. And, yes. See the source and, and uh, look up some statistics as yeah. well from there. So there was another term that Brittany had used, actually a few terms, um, that I'd love for you to kind of talk about more and and define for people who are listening from my aspect of it as well, where we uh, still would love some more information just to really understand further. So she had used the term white knuckling it when she was talking about her sobriety. Can you talk about that term a little bit more? Yeah. (laughs) So it's so helpful to have you doing this because... I realize that these terms are not, you know, common parlance. Like I, we use these all the time in our recovery speak. (laughs) And I just, I, you know, anyway, it's uh, what's the word? Industry lingo. White knuckling is when you basically are gritting your teeth, taking the pain and willing your way through it. It being 
being abstinent. You know, when you're in recovery, and I can talk a little bit about that too, but when you're in recovery doing the work, you theoretically are not white knuckling it. White knuckling refers to using willpower to not drink or use. And there have been some amazing studies, which I cannot intelligently quote, but they're out there around how willpower runs out. There is a finite amount of willpower that people have. Really, I'll find it. I'll I'll find it and put it into the, the notes on this episode. There is a finite amount of willpower and it does actually run out. You can, and the longer, you you basically exhaust your willpower and that's why people typically cannot achieve huge things with willpower alone, particularly uh, when it comes to substance. So white knuckling refers to people who are using willpower to try to not drink and use and are not doing the other work and having other solutions to try to change everything as opposed to changing this one singular thing, which is I'm just going to stop drinking and using and I'm going to grit my teeth and get through the pain. Hmm. Very interesting. Okay. See, interesting. That's the word I keep using. Mm-hmm. Amazing. <laughs> we should have everybody drink water whenever we use it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's a self-care game. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Whenever I say self-care. interesting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, amazing. self-care. If you're trying to drink water, more water in your life, which I am. People every time have we to pee like three times during one podcast. I know. I know. It's so true. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, Okay, so there's another term that I had actually never heard, and I really would love to know about this term. This one piqued my interest. Renee talked about her emotional sobriety. And Ah. so it's – I can kind of picture what I think that might be, but how does that relate in with finding and achieving recovery, working the program? Where does emotional sobriety come into play? Emotional sobriety – so I'm, I, I just want to say that I, I, this is my interpretation of it. Uh, I am not the thought leader on this. As I understand it, emotional sobriety, you know, so if we step, step back, sobriety is the act of not drinking and using, over, you know, continuously and also doing, you know, having a recovery lifestyle. So doing things, whether that's therapy, community, exercise, wellness, it's a whole, you're replacing that void that we talk about with something else. That's basically the essence of sobriety is that you're replacing it as opposed to just abstinence where you don't change anything else. You just stop. Mm. That's abstinence. That's not sobriety. So emotional sobriety is kind of the same thing where you're in a place where you're not emotionally using other things to feel differently. You are addressing things head on. So emotional sobriety where you strip away. What's a good example might be if I know that I use social media to check out because whenever I'm stressed or I'm having these feelings, I go to social media to just kind of relax. So I'm using this thing and it's unhealthy. Then that might prohibit me from having the emotional sobriety I want. Whereas if I'm having those same feelings and I'm using meditation, I'm going on a walk, I'm calling a friend, I'm doing writing, I'm whatever those things are, things that engage in wellness for me and my long-term recovery, that's going to be emotional sobriety. So it's, it's how you're interacting with your emotions, what you're doing, 
you know, it's not checking out when things are uncomfortable and making lifestyle and emotional lifestyle changes. Because it's one thing to, I've been in a place where I can do all the things that you're supposed to do, right? Um, We call it smart feet. My feet will take me to a meeting. My feet will take me away from a bar. I will call a friend. I'll do all the, I'll go through the motions. But emotional sobriety is where the emotions come with that. It's not just me going through the motions. And there are times in long, if you ask people who've been sober a long time, there are times where you're just going through the motions. I mean, it's just so, you know, that is, and then there are, and then, and then you kind of don't feel well. You, you're like, oh, why do I feel like crap? Oh, I'm not doing the actual work. I'm just going through the motions. So hopefully that. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. I mean, to me, in, in any type of recovery, you're dealing with so many different layers, like we've talked yeah. about in past episodes. Yeah. So it's impossible to have to kind of help with healing your brain, you know, for right. for people who right. um, are not in the industry. There's something called PAWS. What does it stand for? It's post-acute withdrawal syndrome, P-A-W-S. And so PAWS can have a myriad of symptoms, basically. Right between, after you get sober, yeah. Right. And, and it can take, I think I remember, please correct me if I'm wrong, between 6 to 24 months for your yeah. brain to properly heal after you become sober. Yeah, and it just depends on what you were using and how much, but yeah, and and your genetic, you know, makeup. But yeah, it's you do real damage. I mean, it does real damage and the, you know, I always say that treatment, when you go to treatment, when you go to 30-day inpatient treatment and you don't do outpatient after, that's like buying a Bentley and never getting an oil change. Like you've put this investment into something and then you you don't keep up with it because the requirement around treating this brain disease requires long-term care. And you've, you've talked about this before. You've mentioned how you didn't realize that this was an ongoing process. Yeah. And the 30-day model on its own without the aftercare is not typically going to be as successful as someone who over a long period of time engages in treatment because of that, the way the brain heals. Well, and if you kind of take a look at it from a standpoint, taking the substance use piece out of it, if you just use, for example, someone who's struggled maybe with anger their whole lives, Mm -hmm. if you put, if you take that person and put them in anger management for 30 days, what is the real possibility of if they walk out of that treatment center, they are completely changed and will never have an anger issue and will never have to be led through and told how to move through a situation or be helped through a situation without kind of like re-going. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah probability is probably zero. That is, a, that is complete zero. I've seen that happen to people where yeah. there's this huge expectation put on them and it's not something that can be recovered from 30, 60, 90, even a year. It's like you have to kind of like get that out of your character and that takes a long time. Yeah. I mean, it's honestly, it's taken me years to... <laughs> do some of that. I mean, I shared in my story how at two years sober, I finally realized I was an alcoholic. <laughs> that was the greatest <laughs> part of your story. Yeah, I, where, I can laugh about it because you're okay. Yeah. Now. No, but I mean, that's the insanity. That's what I mean. Like it, it, I don't, you know, whether or not my brain was in that moment actually short circuiting. I mean, I, I think that it had recovered physiologically at that point, but that's, you know, the way that the thinking needs to change over a long period of time. And that is what allows people to have long-term sobriety in, in any way, shape, or form is that you change 
your thinking, you change your life. You can't if you if you live alcoholic if you're if you're drinking and using and all you stop doing, all you stop doing is taking your medicine basically, taking the anesthetic and nothing else changes. How is that a happy life? It's not at all. Right. So that's what we're talking about is like that's the abstinence versus and how do you know how to do that? I mean, I didn't know how to do that and and going, you know, not everybody gets the opportunity to go to treatment. I I did. I got the opportunity to go several times and um, <laughs> visited that, a few facilities. Yeah, yeah, I did the West Coast tour <laughs> and that allowed me to learn the skills, you know, learn, okay, you know, learn about writing, learn about, learn different therapy techniques, learn about trauma, how to change my behavior, my actions, basically everything about my life in a way that would allow me to sustain this very difficult thing without willpower because wow. I'm not sober because of willpower, personally. I, it does not require willpower for me to stay sober at this point in my life. Interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? So it doesn't require willpower for you to stay sober at this point in your life. And this is because of the steps you've taken and the work that you've done. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because that's... Yeah. So that's, that's because I have changed the, my neuro pathways. So... My neural pathways for people who your neural pathways are basically the thought roads that you travel regularly. And those thought roads are, you know, we have what's called plasticity. And those thought roads are changeable. So picture a wheat field and the wheat is grown up really high, maybe seven feet tall. And someone, you, presumably in this case, have been walking down a specific path and all that wheat has been pushed down. So there's a specific path that goes all the way through the wheat field. Well, every time you walk up to that, you know, that edge of the wheat field, the fastest way to get through it, right, the most comfortable, normal, obvious way is to go down that that road that you've already gone down. Well, that's the same thought pattern, I should drink, I'm a piece of crap, that whatever that that road is, that's a neural pathway. Mm-hmm. It's the one that you continue to travel. You push the wheat down and eventually it's just automatic. So creating new neural pathways is about creating, is about, you know, walking down areas of this wheat field that have not been walked before and creating new pathways. And eventually the other pathway that you don't want to walk down anymore, that wheat starts to grow up and that pathway starts to disappear. And the new ones that you're walking, those become, you know, the regular ones that your brain takes. And that's a very remedial way of explaining neuroscience. But the way that I've done that in, in over the course of years, first of all, I've had a lot of professional help. A lot, a lot, a lot. Second of all, I've built community that has been vital for me to build community. And Brittany talks about this, talks about building community. I found people who understood how my brain works. When I would say something super crazy that other people and the rest of the world would think was super crazy, all the other people who have the same struggles that I do look at me and and tell me, oh yeah, I totally think that. And suddenly I don't feel so crazy. In fact, I want to know what they did to stay sober. I want to know what they what they're doing to, you know, work through that and how how they keep that loudspeaker in their head, how they quiet that. So I surrounded myself with other people who were in recovery, 
I chose, personally, I chose 12-step recovery because it was the easiest. The God stuff really freaked me out, but I just ignored it because I needed community so badly and the people seemed really cool. So I figured, whatever, I'll just... I'll just pretend they're not saying God and, and, uh, and, and, you know, and eventually, and that worked well for me. It doesn't work well for everybody. And there are other sober communities. So then I went to therapy and learned about changing the neural pathways, learned about what I actually thought about myself. I really thought I had self-esteem because I thought I was attractive enough and I, I knew I was smart. So I was like, that's self-esteem. I, I, and, and I thought that that was enough. And I thought that, you know, meant that I liked myself and I learned that it didn't. And I learned I had all these traumas. So I walked and talked through things that needed to be unraveled. And once they were unraveled, the power was taken out of them. And I can't tell you why that is. One thing that Brittany talked about was the shame and the hiding in her behavior. And there's so much shame that comes. So, I mean, there's with addiction of every kind, there's this huge amount of shame and there's something about and, and hiding, right? So there's something about hiding and shame that exacerbates those feelings. And for whatever reason, I'm sure there's a scientific reason, but I don't have it at my fingertips right now. Shedding light on those things, talking about, I am ashamed of this, you know, I hide this, whatever it is, brings an incredible amount of freedom and it, it dissipates. I mean, it's not, you know, there's things you do in that you'll never feel good about, but it just, it takes the power out of it. Mm -hmm. It really does. And so I did a lot of that work. I took the power out of a lot of those negative thoughts, those feelings, those situations. I looked at what I was angry about. I looked at where some of that void was coming from. So I did a lot of this therapeutic work and I did a lot of writing. Uh, I went to the gym. I, so I, I changed my behaviors along with it. So I acted my way into new thinking. Mm. That's really great. That's such an important point. I love going back to kind of the, the, the neural pathways. It was such a great visual. And I know you've told that to me before in you know some of our personal conversations. And, and it's helped me out so much in order to start creating new neural pathways. And it's not easy. You have no. to really stick with it for yes. I mean, that's, a long period of time. That's where the to, years come in. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Too. No, I know. I'm in yeah. the middle of doing that right now. Yeah. Ashley's like my personal counselor. <laughs> <laughs> not not necessarily, but kind of our, our joke is that I should Venmo her for our time together because she helps she helps me out so much because it just comes out of her. She can't help herself. <laughs> I'm, I'm just sharing my experience, strength, and hope. It's wonderful. But it's been really difficult. I kind of hit like a wall at like 15 days and I was like, okay, where do I go from here? Do you have any advice for people like me who are like hitting a wall or having a difficult time if they have started the process or or maybe they're inspired from this conversation? They're like, okay, I mean, I'm going to try this as an exercise. I'm going to, you know, stop giving light and giving my attention to these thoughts and I'm going to start creating new thoughts. Like what can you do or what do you need to know and remember in pushing through that when it starts getting really difficult? So there are are a bunch of things I've learned over the years that have helped me. Um, none of this is information. I just want to say this. None of this is information I made up. Um, this is all stuff I've learned. Whatever you give attention to gets bigger. 
So if you pay attention to the problem, the problem gets bigger. And if you pay attention to the solution, the solution gets bigger. Another way to say that is that thoughts become things. What you think about, you will get. Wow. And this is, this is a concept that has taken me a long time to understand because I've tried to pull it apart. But the, the way that I would explain this is that you, whatever you're thinking about, you're giving power to. You're actually creating more thoughts and neural pathways around that topic. So for example, there are so many times where I ask somebody what they want. What do you want to get out of this experience? Uh, What's your, you know, I'm trying to think of a really good example, but basically asking somebody what they want and they'll tell you what they don't want. Ah, people so often lead with what they aren't, what they don't want, um, an apology. So, so that, that type of stuff, that's, you're creating so much more attention and focus on that. And think about it when we, when we think about something, right? If I'm thinking about creating a podcast, for example, and I'm thinking, I think about it every single day, right? Maybe one day I buy a microphone and maybe I mention it. So it's on my mind. Over the course of time, the likelihood of me doing that is so much higher than if I were thinking about something else because I'm putting thought into it. It manifests itself, right? I'm putting energy into thinking about it. Maybe eventually I take a step towards it. I talk about it. So to get back to your question about what people should do or what I do, just sharing my experience, what I have been doing is I write about what I want I think about what I want. And when I start to go into that place of, I don't want this, or I lead with that, I literally in my head say, stop. And I re-say it. I rewrite it. On my mirror in my bathroom, I have a post-it that says, thoughts become things. Mm. Think about what you want. Uh, There's so many amazing books on this topic about thoughts becoming things and manifesting what we want. That's really where it's come for me. And I'm happy to put some of those links in in our episode. But that's the biggest thing is repeating the same way you got the negative thoughts, which was thinking about them and repeating them over and over and over again and looking for situations to confirm that negative thinking. Oh, I didn't get the job therefore it's because I have ugly hair. And if you if you think that over and over again, you're going to find ways to affirm that belief mm-hmm. and it gets stronger and stronger. So the same way that you do that is the way that you create the new ones. And it doesn't matter if you believe it or not at first. It really, really does not matter. It doesn't matter if you feel like the most ridiculous person in the world saying it out loud, or I want to love my body. If you say that every single day, show me how, show me how, show me how I want to, then you're thinking about putting love into something and that's where the energy goes. So think about what you want. That is so phenomenal. And I love the visual of focusing on what you do want and not what you don't. So I know you and I talked about what Ashley recently helped me with was I had said I didn't want to become one of my parents right? as a parent. Now, I'm not a parent, but it's something that, you know, in life you think about going forward. And and that was my answer to you was you said, what's stopping you? And I said, I don't want to become this one parent. Right. I didn't want to become my mother. Right. Because it just was not a good experience. Right. 
And that was just in itself terrifying. And that was the thing that you led with. And I didn't realize how much that took up my thought life. Right. Like that right. blew like, me away. Because how much time had you spent thinking about what type of parent you do want to be? You'd spent all your time thinking about what type of parent you don't want to be. And so the whole idea of becoming one was terrifying. Absolutely. Understandably. And that's all I could connect it to. Right. That was the only feeling that I had. Yeah. Which is horrible, but it's I mean, the truth. It, it's it's about the narrative. It's about those neural pathways. So how do we create the new neural? In, in your case, we write down and spend time thinking about what kind of parent do I want to be? Right. And we write it down and we think about it and maybe we write it down again and maybe we write it down every single day. Right. And that's the first thing we write down and the first thing we think about. And we just think about what you want to be, what you want. And eventually you start to believe that. I mean, you do. You start to believe like, oh, I can do that or that's doable. And what you don't want falls out of focus. And what you don't want isn't part of what you do want. So therefore, it's not there. You don't have to worry about that. Yeah, because so that, you've taken the time and, right. the, and the work and the effort to put your focus in the correct perspective and in the correct place so that if, when other negative thoughts do come, I have an interaction with my mother, it brings up a trigger, it happens again, that I don't digress back to that. So right. using that as an example, right? And then you had mentioned with Brittany how, you know, she really had – She's been a person that has put in the work. Mm -hmm. Like she really has not yes. given up no matter what. And, yes. and so I think that's so important. It's like that if you can, you know, take that example and relate it back to recovery, these are the reasons why the work has to continue. And it's not, you know, like I, what did we discuss it in 3.5 whenever I had said, you know, my originally or my original thought on recovery was you just win this recovery medal right. and congratulations. Right. But this example definitely proves no, absolutely not. Right. Because you're coming in with the same brain that got you into the problem in the first place, right? Which if, is my favorite if, quote of yours. Right. You can't fix your broken brain with your broken brain. Right. Like if it's, if it's a brain disease, right, <laughs> and you just stop drinking then you really haven't treated your brain disease, right? You start Correct. treating your brain disease once you stop drinking. So you have cool. to stop the drinking or using or whatever it is, the, the gambling, the sex, whatever, whatever your right. drug of choice is in order to treat the problem. So by definition, it cannot be resolved just from abstinence. Yeah. So, you know, we, we talk a lot, people in recovery talk a lot about the work, the work, the work, the work, and, and that can be kind of confusing, but... It starts with the abstinence typically or some period of abstinence and getting in touch with reaching out to connecting with other people who have walked the path. Because for me, I needed people who felt the way that I felt to explain to me what they did, right? So I found women who had what I wanted. They had the life, the car, the husband, the kids, the career. They had things that I could see that their life had changed. And I asked them how they got there and what work they did to get there, right? If you mm -hmm. want what the winners have, do what the winners do. Mm -hmm. So I found what I perceived to be the winner or winners. And I asked them how they did it. And I spent time with them and talked to them. So it's different for different people, right? Some people are going to need guidance from a person who knows a lot about growing up in a cult, Mm -hmm. Right. I don't, that's not my experience. So that, I mean, not that they can't help me, but that might not 
I might not need that particular person. I might need someone who kind of specializes or understands or has experienced my my experience. That's what's so wonderful about listening to different stories and listening to people's life stories and kind of what we do here is that you can identify people who you'd like to, um, you know, in a, for lack of a better word, mentor. Mm-hmm. How, how did you get there? What did you do? Uh, did you do a lot of writing? Did you go to therapy? Did you go to workshops? Did you get really into exercise, pray, meditate? You know, did you need to go to Thailand to discover yourself? What What did you do? Right. And that's, you know, that's why it's very difficult to just say, okay, this is what everybody should do. It's cookie cutter for everyone because it's not. Some people require more work in, in some areas than others. I love that. And I love that, you know, just kind of circling back to breaking the shame know that feeling. And I know every one of our listeners knows that feeling in one way or another where the shame and that that secret or that thing has that power over you Oh yeah, and how debilitating that is. Yep. And so having that community. And if you don't have a community around you, email us. We can help you find one. There's yeah. communities online. Yes. There are workshops. There's free Oh yeah. We, communities. we have so many I mean, resources. Just, so some um, someone emailed me and said, tell us about how to connect. So while we're mentioning this, right. it's podcast at lionrockrecovery.com. Podcast at lionrockrecovery.com. That's the email. Email us. We'll connect you with resources. We'll connect you with people. You know, if we can't help, we'll lead you in the right direction. Absolutely. And I think I also want to address because I had mentioned, you know, part of my struggle just personally and how Ashley was helping me through that. And therapy has been so phenomenal. There is such a stigma still. People do not understand. I know it. It's not, you're a crazy person, go to therapy. I know. I, I say, I wish that there is as much acceptance around mental health as there is around physical health. No one goes, why'd you go to the doctor, you weirdo? What's wrong with you? <laughs> hey, oh, you went to the doctor. Are you okay? Can I yeah. help you with anything? Maybe Can it's I a pick up groceries? Yeah. Exactly. And therapy should be a mental checkup and just checking in with your mental health because there's so much that weighs on people nowadays with work and with family. There's expectations. And even living in the technology era, it really takes our attention in about 7 million different places. Yes. So therapy, I speak from experience, just like Ashley definitely does. It's so funny. I mean, I can tell you so many stories, particularly stories around couples therapy where I have friends and, and and even in my own experience with my husband where we go and the, your husband, your partner goes kicking and screaming. Just absolutely. <laughs> I mean, Dak went kicking and screaming like, this is going to be, you guys are going to gang up on me. And I mean, I, seriously, all these things. And it just transforms relationship. I have a friend right now and culturally she's Persian and, and culturally, you know, they don't seek help. They don't talk about these things. And she's currently going to therapy. She calls me and she's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. You know, and she's known me for a decade mm-hmm. where I've talked about this stuff and that, you know, people suddenly it's relevant because she's doing it. And and that is the type of thing I hear all the time from people who are like, I'm smart. I know what to do, or I know what my problems are, or 10,000 other things that, we all think, and then you go and you have this experience. Obviously, it needs to be a a good therapist, but mm-hmm. it's just crazy the amount of emotional freedom that you can get from doing, you know, talking to someone yeah. who knows how to talk to you about it. That's the piece that's different. Yep. 
not your friend who's going to say, oh, yeah, it's cool. My brother went through that. You just got to, you know, go to the sports bar and and only have one or whatever it is. Like, I mean, the advice people get, it's like this person is trained to talk to you and extract information from you and show you a perspective that it doesn't matter how intelligent you are, you may not see. Absolutely. It's so helpful. And I think the biggest thing too that we really want people to take away from these podcasts, other than getting, you know, hope and inspired by, oh gosh, our guests are just phenomenal. I mean, I just can't even say Amazing. That. They're so interesting too. <laughs> <laughs> Buzzword, take a drink of water. Yep. You know, we really want people to understand that you're not alone in this. We've all gone through yes. something crazy. You don't have to have gone through one thing or the other, you know, to, to feel alone or feel like, yeah. gosh, like things have gotten dark, you know, or <laughs> whatever else. Everyone goes through this and has different experiences. Experiences. And, you know, Ashley really wanted this to be the courage to change a recovery podcast. We, we initially were kind of, you know, gearing it around substance use disorders, but we wanted to open it up to the entire recovery community, meaning being in recovery from things such as depression and anxiety and eating disorders, eating disorders. gambling, sex, yes. whatever. I'm, there's Because no... it's all the same piece of your brain, right? It's all right. the same feelings. And, and what I encourage people to do is look for the similarities in these stories. These stories, some of these stories are going to be super crazy and there's no way that you'll relate to the specifics of the scenario. Look for the similarities Think about how the feelings are the same, right? If you're looking for the differences, you're going to find them. If you're looking for the similarities, you're going to find them. It's about connecting to people based on a common feeling. And once you find that, you'll find the community and you'll see that it was there all along and it's much easier to find than you previously thought. I love that. Our dream is just to have this just be like a huge podcast community where everyone can just connect together and... Just be loved. Kumbaya, my love. I know. I feel like a hippie saying that. <laughs> Nothing against hippies. I love them. I kind of dress like one. <laughs> <laughs> well, no. I mean, it's true. It, it is true. I'm, I'm, I'm kidding, but it is. No, she's really going to sing Kumbaya no, if you I'm start not. connecting with us. No, I'm not. She will. I'll record it. It's a, it. a uh, talent I do not have. Recovery podcast album dropping in July 2019. <laughs> it's really not. I don't know. What if we do? I'm not going to think about that. Therefore, <laughs> thoughts will not become things. <laughs> okay. Well, I might. <laughs> um, what were you talking about? Community. Oh. And then you started singing. <laughs> of course I did. <laughs> you gave me the idea. <laughs> okay. No. So if you want to know, if you're listening to this and thinking, I, I love actually singing. <laughs> yeah. Or that. Uh, I live on a farm and there's nobody around or I live in a community where people don't talk about this or I travel for work or I work on an oil rig or or your stay-at-home mom or not. Any of the – I mean, I, gosh, I could just keep going in all these scenarios. But any of those things, if you're wondering if you have a circumstance that – feels like you can't create community or you can't figure out how to create community, reach out to us. Mm-hmm. I'll help you figure that out. I'm happy to guide and and give people suggestions on how to find community. There are lots of ways. It doesn't have to be a 12-step program. There are other ways to find it. There are, there are communities online. There's so many resources out there. And I'm happy to help people 
find those, connect those. So please feel free to email us, podcast at lionrockrecovery.com. I will answer. And also, if you guys have suggestions on stuff that you need or topics you'd like us to discuss or even like a certain kind of guest you want to hear, please let us know. We really want to continue growing this and we you know, want this podcast to be much bigger than ourselves. We want to actually just be reaching out constantly with the recovery community. So on top of Ashley being able to direct you towards resources in your area or that would be helpful for you, you know, email us with suggestions or with you know, things that you're wanting out of this podcast too. We're so open to that. Absolutely. All all right. We'll see you next week. Got a great guest coming on next week. I don't want to disclose who it is Mm -hmm. yet. Don't tell him. (sighs) So hard not to tell. The buildup. Okay. Tuesdays. Podcast comes out every Tuesday. It's posted 12 a.m. Boom. Stay up late Monday night. Subscribe. Download. Oh, also, if you want to support us, Please, please, please rate and leave a review on iTunes. It helps us so much, and we are really, really grateful for your support. It's one way that you can show that you're liking the content and uh, and following along. Absolutely. Well, thank you guys so much for tuning in again. We're really looking forward to sharing our next guest with you. Just like Ashley said, subscribe, download, rate, review. Email us, podcast at lionrockrecovery.com. Let us know how we can help you this week. See you next week. The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast, would like to thank our sponsor, Lion Rock Recovery, for their support. Lion Rock Recovery provides online substance abuse counseling where you can get help from the privacy of your own home. For more information, visit www.lionrockrecovery.com backslash podcast. Subscribe and join our podcast community to hear amazing stories of courage and transformation. We are so grateful to our listeners and hope that you will engage with us. Please email us comments, questions, anything you want to share with us, how this podcast has affected you. Our email address is podcast at lionrockrecovery.com. We want to hear from you.